0: Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Um, Did everybody get access to the the lecture from Tuesday? Okay. that's up to you if you want to listen to those. I provide them just to give you guys some additional insights. I try to kind of cover the high points of the chapter because you just can't talk about everything within a chapter in even two class meetings. If I had to, if I had you for both sessions, Tuesday and Thursday, um, I couldn't cover every single thing in the chapter with the time we have, even if I started talking at the minute one through the minute, uh, the last minute. Uh, and I like to try to spend some time um, talking about other ideas and concepts just because uh, there's a world out there beyond this and this stuff does tie into that. And so we talked about on Tuesday, just got the conversation going, these internal and external environments. Um, No matter what uh, organization you are, you are impacted by your internal culture and processes, your internal environments, and you constantly have these external factors that are kind of weighing on you um, economic forces, technological forces, sociocultural, uh, natural, and then governmental. And the example I talked about on Tuesday was talking about weather. I mean, if you want to go open up that shop at the beach, you know, you kind of have to know what you're getting into. You know, you're getting into a seasonal experience where people are going to be there from March to September, roughly, you know, and there's a kind of a bell curve of uh, traffic. So, you know, I don't know if you can see this. this is- but you know that this is kind of what your season's going to be like. So this is March, this is September, and these are kind of the dead the dead months. Now, um, but you know if there's a hurricane right here, that's going to be an impact. You know, it's going to jack up your sales. So if you know that you're going to open up a place at the beach, I would sit down and kind of um, play out the game theory on what happens if and when. So. If you know that, you know, I can make a lot of money doing a beach-based business, um, but if we do have an event, a hurricane, can I survive? Is it going to put me in bankruptcy? Or what's the contingency plan if uh, something does happen? And so uh, you have to kind of have a plan C, plan Plan B, plan C, and so and forth, um, and ways that you can mitigate that loss. Because if you go in and sign a lease on a, a physical retail store, The lease owner is, I mean, not going to care if there's a hurricane, right? They're going to want to get paid. And so uh, you have to be able to have some contingencies in place for that and understand what you're getting into. But this is applicable regardless of where you decide to set up shop. Um, If you decide to open up a physical retail establishment in Goldsboro, North Carolina, you've got to know kind of the game theory of what could happen if there's a major deployment, for example, and we lose – a chunk of our population. Um, if I open up a business that caters to the military and there's a, a political uh, thing where um, Seymour Johnson could be on the chopping blocks for a base closing, God forbid. I know that's like, it seems improbable and impossible, but they do close military bases from time to time, you know. And so uh, I would hate to see that happen, but that's the kind of questions you have to ask yourself. What would happen if and when? And you can't... Um, you can't imagine or factor all the variables at play, but the more that you can imagine out and figure out, the more prepared you'll be for an eventuality if it does occur. And so what happens with game theory is you think about... Uh, that's the thats the tie-in. <laughs> I was talking about board games. I'm talking about game theory now. That's when you look at chess or you look at Monopoly or whatever game you're playing, um, some people do this, some people don't, where you think about... What's my opponent trying to do? Or what's my opponent going to do in the move after? If I do this, what's my opponent going to do? In business, is very much the same thing. If I do this, how's the market going to react? How's my competition going to react? How are my customers going to react? You need to think about those things. Can anybody think of an example where a business did something and it did not go over well with their customers? Mm-hmm. Like, what was an example? So my
1: stepmom recently opened up a coffee shop okay. and she-
0: is it the one in mount olive yes okay
1: yes and so she had my um me and my sister like everybody in mount olive knows us and i'm not trying to be sure or anything right right we grew up there and my dad has a contracting business so a lot of people know us and
0: okay
1: she didn't hire us like we had talked about me and my sister she hired some other girls from that she knew from her family. Right. And uh, it just didn't go over well with the business because we had a lot of people asking, like almost everyone asked, where's Hannah and Haley? Right. And we're working here. And sure. we lost a lot of business because the girls that were working there were just really rude and they didn't have good
0: customer service. How is the business going so far? I think it's going pretty good, but we have like slug periods because people just come in and come out like they rather not be together. Do um, so you have um, some
1: students come and stay right. in there? So I think it's going to get better. We're just kind
0: of trying to work out the kinks of the new business. You know? Right. I got you. Um, I'm trying to think, like, I haven't been in there. I don't drink a lot of coffee myself. Um, mm-hmm. I love coffee. I love really good coffee, but it makes my heart, like, you know, I, I can, I don't know, like, I'm just trying what I can do now to, like, not have a heart attack, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So point. Yeah. So I'm trying to, like, minimize the caffeine. But, um, but you know, if if I was in that coffee business, I would try to differentiate myself somehow because um, I'll tell a quick story about that. When Starbucks started, prior to it becoming a single-serve coffee company, all they sold were beans and coffee supplies. So you would go to a Starbucks back in the day in Seattle and – they would have all these uh, import beans and, and really, really high quality. And they would sell you grinders. They would grind them up for you and sell you bulk coffee. And um, the guy who started uh, Starbucks, first name Howard, his other, his last name will come to me in a moment. But Howard went in there and he didn't like, he's not a big coffee fan, but they ground up some fresh ground coffee, gave it to him, let him try it. He was just like, look, this is a completely different Experience than what I've gotten from like a McDonald's cup of coffee, for example, yeah. completely different. Just like, I mean, if you've ever had a really, really good cup of coffee, it's like, whoa, this is something special. Mm-hmm. And so um, he he started trying to convince Starbucks, you guys need to get out of uh, this idea of selling bulk coffee and start selling single serve cup of coffee and charging a premium for it because it's so delicious that coffee uh, aficionados and 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 uh, people that were really into coffee would pay that that premium price. A lot of people said you're crazy. You know, people pay 50 cents for a cup of coffee or a dollar at McDonald's or Hardee's. They'll never come and pay 3 to 5 dollars for a coffee, you know, at a Starbucks. Well, he believed in his idea. He eventually bought the company. It started with I think 11 stores, and now it's got, you know, thousands of locations and in, in like 160 countries across the earth, wow. multi-billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all because he believe, he saw an opportunity and believed in it. And so if I was in your company, your parents' company, or your, your mom's company, I would try to do something to create um, some type of attachment. You know, like you said customers come in and they leave. What kind of incentive? Do you have like a punch card, for example, or a membership?
1: We have a loyalty card. Okay. It's like every time you purchase a drink, you get a, there's like 10 little right. punches.
0: But it's not per visit. It's per drink. I got it's you. Okay. I got minutes. you. Well, um, Panera started a coffee r- r- like loyalty program where, or subscription, basically. I think it's like 13 or 14 a month, something like that. And you get unlimited coffee. Oh. But the reason they did that is because they knew that people that subscribe to that would go in and maybe get a Danish or a donut or whatever else they've got to offer. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I don't know how you could translate that to that company, but I'd want to try something that that encouraged people to to come in. Like, you want them to want to come in every day. You know, that's the thing, and they will start spending more money with you. So Um, kind of moving along, though, because I talked about this on the last podcast, these different factors. I talked about mechanistic versus organic. Mechanistic being uh, kind of a traditional hierarchy structure, not necessarily hierarchy, but... <clears throat> There's me- mechanistics what you what you get when you think of a traditional company structure, um, when you've got a leadership structure in place that has a span of control, a hierarchy, and um, a more formalized system. <clears throat> Organic is very, um, uh, I guess, less formal. It's it's uh, less rigid. It's horizontal, meaning that uh, everybody kind of works together on the same level and. Either, even though both setups, they're both trying to <coughs> accomplish the same mission, um, the organic, um, you, you see like people that are more autonomous. And to have autonomy, what does that mean? Autonomy means freedom. Freedom to choose, freedom to, to act. And so people that have higher degrees of autonomy actually give better performance. <coughs> they, they have more, like as an example, let's say that... Um, you ask somebody to do a very specific task in a very specific way, and right then they're going to think, "Well, <clears throat> I have to do this very specific thing in a very specific way." Or if you said, "I want you to do this, and I want you to figure out the best way to do it," and right then their brain starts working. You know, they start thinking, "Man, well, how can I how can I best achieve this outcome?" And as a manager or leader, you can step in and, and observe and say, "You know, you don't want to micromanage, but..." As they're going through that process, you're asking them questions, and people like to, to talk about their ideas, you know, and they like to be the, the creator of the process. <clears throat> and so if you give them the opportunity to choose, they feel like they're a part of that process. And like with me, um, Wayne gives me the autonomy to create my lesson plans, and, and they give me the classes and say go. And so <clears throat> I select, I, I'm a part of the, the um, I guess, process of selecting the book, and we work together. We're a team. We're more of the organic style. We do have a mechanistic hierarchy in place, but um, my chair and my dean, um, we all are very similar in what we do, and um, we, we work together as a unit, and so they give me the autonomy to choose kind of how I spend my time and how I prepare my lesson plans and things like that, and so <clears throat> the higher degree of autonomy, the higher degree or of less rigidness and more flexibility, um, the better performance you get from people. <clears throat> There's a company in Raleigh called SAS, S A S S. It's one of the top fifty companies, I believe, to work in in America. My one of my friends' sisters works there. Um, everybody makes like a really really generous salary. I'm talking eighty thousand plus up. Um, <clears throat> in addition to that. They have incredible um, benefits. They've got an on-campus movie theater. They've got childcare on campus. They've got um, tremendous uh, vacation um, perks and benefits. <clears throat> they even have what's called a, a road work environment, results-only work environment, where individuals can pretty much work their own hours. So if you want to come in at 8 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, they don't care about the details. They care about the results. So whether you work, you know, 20 hours a week or 50 hours a week, they're just caring about the output. Are you getting done what we want you to get done? Are you putting out good results? Um, and so you can't have that in every work environment, obviously. If you run a retail shop and you've got dedicated hours, you need people there to run it. Um, same thing if you've got, like, food service. You need people there to prepare. But some some work environments really thrive with this idea of, uh, giving people more autonomy and flexibility. So just keep that in mind. There's actually, one last thing on this, there's actually a theorist his, his, um, his name is Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. He wrote, came up with this theory called flow theory meaning that um, people that have autonomy and engage in activities they choose and like will do better performance over time. And so there's another theory by a guy named Edward Deci and Richard Ryan called Self-determination theory basically has three or four tenets. Um, they 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 believe that people seek out activities that are novel or interesting. That are um, they seek relatedness, they seek autonomy, uh, and meaning that they they want to do things that are fun and interesting to do. And you can make work fun and interesting if you give people choice, you know, because they're figuring out their way to do it. So. Um, so we talked about mechanistic. This is a graph that shows kind of this evolution of functional to, to virtual. Um, and you can see that over time we have this, uh, this, this, this shift from functional, divisional, geographic, matrix, vertical, and virtual. And I'm going to kind of talk about those. So this is a very functional structure, kind of a traditional basic hierarchy. And You see this hierarchy in a lot of different organizations. Something like this, where you have a CEO at the top, some VPs at the next level, some like divisional, uh, like or associate vice presidents or stuff like that, associate, VP, and then you have um, like district level, district manager, and then you have like a store or front manager. And then you have associates. And so this is kind of a traditional hierarchy in a lot of different organizations. They just have different titles. Like here at Wayne, we have a president of the college. Above the president, in most organizations, you have like a board of directors that hire the president and oversee to make sure that decisions are being made uh, soundly. Um, We have vice presidents here. We have deans, which are kind of our divisional heads. Uh, They're kind of between the district manager and the, the divisional then we have department chairs, which would be kind of the store managers or front managers. And then the associates are the actual instructors. And so uh, and so it's important to have hierarchies and for people to understand what their role is in that. This is a diagram of a divisional structure. And you can see they, the way they've got it divided up is based on products. But there is no hard and fast rules of how a company has to organize it just needs to be efficient and make sure that waste is not occurring. Um, I mentioned this on the podcast Tuesday. Uh, when you see this marketing across the the bottom here, for me personally, I don't think it makes sense to have four different marketing departments. You know, but some companies may deem that be be necessary. You know, so depending on the size of the company and the size of the divisions within the company, they may say, okay, we need somebody doing marketing, and it may just be you know two or three people doing that, you know, within each division. So it really depends on the, the needs of that organization. This is the mess I was talking about on Tuesday. When you see this, I just think just a cluttered mess. You know, this is a network arrangement. Um, when it, and the, the learning opportunity here is if you produce a graphic of any kind or are in a meeting in the future and you can't understand what's being presented in five or ten seconds – then you need to rethink the graphic because this is just a mess. And when I saw this in the book, I was, I was I was thinking I'm going to show this just to talk about how to organize information in a way that's easily understood. And even though this may be an accurate depiction of what this network team structure looks like, it still could be cleaned up. You and, know, and I think uh, the way it's presented now is just way too messy. So it's. it's it doesn't flow very well correct so it needs to be broken into units a little more well-defined so um, yeah I don't really I mean I look at this and I understand generally what's going on but it's just it's just too too much of a mess alright this is uh, the virtual structure and I mentioned on Tuesday that this may be the, the way that that uh, OpenStax actually produces its books um, it's got the editorial team a new book product development uh, and committee and so um, all these different things around the periphery, the sales and marketing, the technical development, design and delivery, all those are outsourced, ha- happening at remote locations, all towards this central focus of producing a new book product. And so just to talk briefly about inputs and outputs, um, and we have inputs. These are the raw materials, the effort, the energy, the actual material of producing something Uh, we take that it's defined as um, resources technologies ideas people students etc taken from the environment the throughput is organizational and subsystems (coughs) i'm sorry organizational subsystems and processes transform inputs through education manufacturing processes etc and the results are the outputs results from the throughputs of phased products I'm sorry, phase-produced products, services, trained, certified, degreed professionals, and people. And so the example it's getting at here with students is students come in as an input from the environments. The time that you spend here learning and earning uh, certifications result in outputs in which you walk away with a certificate, diploma, degree, and the knowledge that you acquired while you were here. And I'll tell you straight up, uh, when I went to college, I graduated with a double major, uh, double bachelor's degree, and it didn't hit me until graduation the day of, I remember the exact day of graduation. It occurred to me that I had actually learned a lot in college, and I didn't think about that the whole time. The whole time I was focused on get the piece of paper, get the piece of paper, get the piece of paper so I can go uh, register or or apply for bigger and better jobs, right, so I get the piece of paper, get the better job. But um, as soon as I got the piece of paper, Within two months, I had a job that paid three times what I was making, So, uh, which doesn't say very much. I went from basically waiting tables to an assistant manager job, but still, it was showed validation in earning the piece of paper. But the real value add to me uh, was the knowledge that I acquired, and it, and it taught me that I could acquire any knowledge I wanted as long as I was willing to go in and put it in the work. And right now, in our life, we have so many outlets You can go to YouTube and watch a video on how to fix the kitchen sink, right? Or you can go learn how to play guitar by watching the video. Or you can listen to an audio book or a podcast and gain some knowledge from that. Uh, And so there's just so many outlets. You can read a traditional book, you know, or download a free ebook from the library and check that out. So uh, there's just so many ways to attain knowledge now. It's very readily available. And so be sure that you're here and not only after the piece of paper, but... To gain some of that knowledge too, <clears throat> so we talked about the external environment. Want we'll to talk about the internal environment a little bit, and so we still have these external things happening, constantly putting pressure. That's kind of that's a good graphic because <clears throat> you can see that that external environment is just constantly kind of sending a a, a force, you know, towards uh, towards the business organization to to give them things to think about. So this year, we've had the pandemic happen, right? That's an external force. And pretty much every organization has had to adapt. Every organization in my life I'm connected to has had to make some adaptation in some degree. And so we see once the external thing happens, these, uh, these societal or sociocultural forces that happen, um, you see businesses adapt. And some of them adapt very quickly. Some of them don't. And we do do those um, adaptations through leadership, strategy, management, goals, marketing, operations, technology, and structure. Um, we have these formal and informal information systems that happen. So managers, cultural, culture, norms, relationship, politics, and leadership. <clears throat> A lot of different things that are happening in order to create this thriving internal environment and so there's this symbiosis between things that happen outside our doors and things that happen inside our door it's kind of a give and take because when you do something internally there's an external reaction and then that external reaction causes another internal reaction so it's kind of a um, action and equal opposite reaction going on you know so <clears throat> when the pandemic happens all these organizations adapted and now that uh, we've adapted we are creating change in the real world. If you rely on the data, I don't know how reliable it is, but we are seeing a decline in cases. That's a good thing. And it's because of organizational adaptation. You know, um, a lot of retail places you walk into require a mask, for example, including Wayne. Uh, and so those types of internal changes are causing external externalities to change. And so you see these things kind of reverberate. Yes, ma'am. So
1: I was <coughs> The coronavirus cases go down a lot. Right. I mean, do you think we're still going to have to wear masks? Like, do you think that's going to be the new
0: normal? Because I really think that could be possible. <clears throat> I think we could get to a point in our society where it will be kind of take it or leave it, you know. I think there will be a chunk of people in our society that will continue to wear masks for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> and I don't know. I mean, I have mixed feelings on it. Like, I don't see any harm doing uh, harm in wearing a mask in a public space, if you're going to a crowded, like grocery store, for example, I think it's a, I think for me personally, it's a, it's a good value add. And I mean, if it prevents me from getting sick, um, even with like a normal flu or common cold, I mean, I hate, I hate getting the flu or I hate getting a common cold because I just feel miserable. Like my sinuses are stuffy and it just jacks me up for a week. So, I mean, you know, I would not be surprised if millions of people still wear masks for the for indefinitely, you know, and just because it's kind of given us permission and it's created a norm where it's not abnormal to wear masks. Whereas like if you look at some Asian cultures like Japan ha have, have highly dense populations, people wore, normally wore masks, you know, you saw that as, as a norm already. And so I don't I don't see a real big issue with it, yes. Okay. So that I
1: would whatever. Right. right. Sure. Do you ever think like ever I think so. Yeah. right right. it
0: I think um I think from this point forward we may have a Another resurgence or a wave in the in this fall fall winter because you know we got flu season coming up and I think it's going to be a rough one. Um, but uh, as we as we go through this and I think we'll get to a point next year where we'll really hit a good point and then start to uh, have some positive correction. Um, I think we're still some time away from quote unquote normalcy. You know, um, you know it, it just if. It's, if you ask a hundred people, they're all going to tell you a hundred different things. Just as my opinion of it is, um, I think there's still a lot of people that don't take it seriously, and that's that's a big that's the biggest issue we have in this country right now is a chunk of people that are not concerned. I'm not I'm not scared of no virus mentality when it's not about you, it's about um, public safety. You know, and so if you look back at things like the AIDS epidemic that happened in the 80s. You guys weren't born yet, so I have to keep... <laughs> but to tell you about it, um, it was it was a culture of fear that existed very similar to the culture of fear we have now with the coronavirus. And there was a large chunk of people that still didn't take it seriously. You know, they thought it was somebody else's problem. And then um, large chunks of people started getting AIDS, and then education spread, and then AIDS is still around but it's a lot less prevalent than it used to be and the big thing that happened was education it became something that people talked about took seriously and started being proactively to acting to avoid it so um we're just not there yet um but it is a serious thing i've got a friend of my parents a um, friend of the family that has been in the bed for two weeks with it you know and that's anything to that pushing you in the bed for two weeks is a serious illness you know mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, I've heard multiple different accounts, and it's the spectrum, you know. I think about a spectrum is you're going to have some people that have just no, no problems, and you're going to have people that have extreme problems. And there's a whole lot of things in between, right? And so there is no, there is no exact science that says that everybody's going to have this exact experience. I mean, I've seen some people that have it don't know they have it, for example. So, go ahead.
1: The thing that... It was off to me that everybody's symptoms aren't the same. I mean, they're all different. Right. Yeah. Like you
0: said, the spectrum
1: thing. Yeah. That's what it is. Well. Or is it different strains? What it
0: is, just once again, my opinion is that we have a spectrum of people of ages and health conditions. Um, So, Americans, just generally speaking, are not a healthy society. You know, I mean, most most of us are overweight and out of shape. You know are not hydrated enough, don't exercise enough, don't sleep enough, don't eat the right diet. And so those four big factors um, contribute to other illnesses, too, heart disease, diabetes, you know, and cancer. And so when you've already got a population of people that are immunocompromised in some way due to a comorbidity, and then you introduce a highly virulent virulent, uh, virus that uh, is easily spreadable and causes... Um, a complex reaction within the body that is, it affects respiratory, it affects your heart. I mean, just so you introduce something like that, you're going to see a spectrum of results that that come from that. And so um, I'm a person that likes science. I liked, I like facts and um, I like to be skeptical of information. And so um, anything that I tell you, my pledge to you as individuals, as my students, as I try to be honest and tell you the truth. And so anything that I say, um, I'll tell you that I just don't know all the information, but based on what I've read and seen, the things I try to share with you is is the truth of the matter. And so I tell my kids to continue to be safe. We want to encourage hand washing, mask wearing, using sanitizer and social distancing. So there's no harm in any of that too, you know what I'm saying? I mean, what does it hurt you to wear a mask? You know? I mean, like I wear socks and shoes and a t-shirt in a store, you know, so a mask is not a big deal. And if I can reduce my chances of getting cold or flu as well, that's a bonus to me. So, yes, ma'am.
1: So, I was <clears throat> listening to the Verena the other day, and the girl made a really good point. She says that everybody that wears masks, you know, people still wear masks, everybody that wears masks has a reason for wearing it, whether it be a family member right, or uh, out of respect for others. Sure. That.
0: Well, let me put it to you in my own personal context. Um, I wear a mask because if I got sick and I died, it would put my entire family in jeopardy. Like, I'm the income earner at at my house. My wife earns some money, too, but, like, our whole financial future is based on the plans I've laid in place, you know. And so if I died, it would put my children in in a a tough financial spot. It would put my wife in a tough financial spot. So I have selfish reasons to wear a mask um, to protect me, but for their benefit as well. So, and I don't want my children to get sick. Children are impacted by this. I mean, the science right now says that um, they're less impacted than adults, but less impacted doesn't mean no impact, right? And so um, if there's a 1% chance that I would prevent, spread to myself or my children by wearing a mask, I'm gonna take that 1%, you know? And so, but I think it's greater than 1%. Nobody, the science is not out on how effective mask wearing is. But Bill Nye, the science guy, has a really good video out where he blows out some birthday candles without a mask. Then he puts on the mask and tries to blow the candles out. And you see very little airflow, you know. And so the, the mask skeptics, I appreciate the fact that they're skeptical because I'm a skeptic. But you have to, just common sense says to that when you breathe out, Um, you're preventing particles from going out, vapor, you know. And if everybody wore a mask and everybody prevented some vapor from going through, I mean, it may not be all. Even if you are still putting coronavirus through that mask, it's probably not going the six feet. It might go a foot or two because there's less wind power behind it. So if you put put the virus in front of a fan and blow it, it's going to spread. But if you put a piece of paper in front of that fan, it still might blow a little bit, but it's not gonna blow as far, right? Yeah. And so that's the logic. So, other other questions, comments? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this one of the positive consequences from the coronavirus is, I think it's made people aware of their own mortality and wanting to be healthier and um, understanding that. Uh, there, there are real stakes involved with people in our lives, you know, like your grandma, like you mentioned. So um, you want to do things and to, to make sure that they're okay. So good conversation. Um, last few things on the chapter. Um, I mentioned this the other day, the McKinsey um, 7S model, these shared values through structure, systems, style, staff, skills, and strategy. I, I made the joke that I think McKinsey just wanted to have a neat little S thing that he created. So. This is, um. these last two slides are really good, because this right here shows how it all comes together, the internal and the external environments. These are impacted on the decision makers, the presidents and CEOs. They have to process these factors on a daily basis and say, you know, because one day like the leader of all these companies, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, they all had to wake up one day and say, there's a pandemic, how do I react to that? You know, what should I do? What should my company do? And they have to process that on both a professional, organizational, and personal level. And so um, as an example, since we've talked about the coronavirus, when news started coming out on February 27th last spring, I sent an email to all my students saying, no need to panic, but if I were you, I would start to make some preparations like, like a hurricane was coming. Go ahead and get you know. I sent everybody a list of food products and items that you could put together for twenty or thirty bucks, um, mostly like ramen, rice, beans, uh, soups, oatmeal, things that you could buy that are low car, uh, low cost, high shelf life, and um, that was something that I was looking at the external environment, and thinking, what can I do to react to that, and so um, they prisons have to align their decisions with the vision, mission, and values they're developing these strategies, they develop goals, and then the they actually go through the throughput of uh, all these different aspects of the organization to create outcomes. And those outcomes impact the financial and economic well-being of the company, the social, political, and ethical outcomes. And then it kind of recycles. Once you have that outcome, you have to react to how those outcomes, um, I guess the message they're sending you. Like if you create a product, you put it out in the market, that's the outcome. Well then, you get feedback from the market. It's a feedback loop that says, we really like this about the product, we don't like that, what can you do about that? How can you make it better? And so, yeah, um, you have to constantly evaluate where you're at, what can you do to fine tune your product, service, you as an individual? You know, what, what is, like, the older you get, your body starts to tell you things, like man, your arm's hurting, what can you do about it? Or you know, you're not, you're tired all the time. What can you do about that? Or you're thirsty all the time. You know, what can you do? Your body will, you have to be able to listen to that. And so the, the people that make the best decisions learn how to think critically and listen and take in information well, okay? All right, last piece. Um, these are just some competing values, the clan mentality, um, adocracy, hierarchy, and markets. And this is constant pull between internal and external Versus flexibility and stability control, and so you can actually take a uh, quiz to kind of find out where your organization kind of falls on this uh, quadrants of uh, corporate culture, and so just kind of um, you can, but you don't have to take a quiz as a leader, uh, a manager, CEO. You can kind of identify where you want your company to be on that spectrum. So, all right, questions, comments about chapter four. <clears throat> good dialogue everybody appreciate you and don't forget about your homework just chapter four is due this week um and <clears throat> i think do you guys have a test yeah, okay one yep one through three that's correct so make sure you knock that out i think it's 50 questions 40 or 50 questions or something like that so i think it's 50 questions with 60 minutes to do it so <clears throat> don't wait until tomorrow night at 10 39 to start it yes ma'am so, when's like, because I know, like, last
1: week or something, and like, the beginning of the week, you said that the test to do
0: on um, Tuesday. I think so what, it... Or, no, it was, like, last week's chapter or whatever. So,
1: it would be, like, Wednesday or Thursday. So, the Moodle it so was due on Friday. So, would it be due on Friday or would
0: it be due on Wednesday? Unless you get an email from me indicating otherwise, always go with what's on the course schedule on the front page of Moodle. That's the master schedule. So right under the syllabus, it'll say course schedule. That is your contract with me on due dates. And so unless I specifically change it due to like a, a need to change, just like like we I had a change at the very beginning of the semester because I just needed to adapt to the one-day-a-week meetings. Um, but other than that, just stick to that course schedule 100%. And If I email you the class and say I'm changing the date on this, that will supersede the the course schedule, okay? But otherwise, I try to do that very sparingly. The only time I try to do it is if, like, I I did it once at the beginning of the semester, but I'll do it again if um, we're out for, like, a hurricane or something. I might make some adjustments there or we're closed because of ice on the road or snow or something like that. So, But I try to very sparingly change dates, and it's usually always in your favor, meaning I'll bump it up, you know, further out to give you some some more
1: time.
0: I don't, did you get, do you, are you signing up for reminds? You must be getting it from Miss Legrand. That's, oh. <laughs> that's okay. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.